Good afternoon to our listeners. My name is Vincenzo Guido. And my name is Matthew Chekhov. We are coming to you live for the first time on this inaugural episode of Law and Society Talk, brought to you by the members of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell, with the generous space and airtime of CornellRadio.com. In short, our publication seeks to provide an open platform for scholarly writing, critical thinking, and reasoned debate on the myriad of issues in the fields of law and policy. Refounded in 2017, the review has in a short time earned a spot as one of the primary outlets for undergraduate students to intensively and meaningfully engage with policies and questions of law that affect our everyday society. I am Vincenzo Guido, co-editor-in-chief and a senior in the ILR school, and with me here again is Matthew Chekhov, the other co-editor-in-chief who is also a senior in the ILR school. And in one of our most recent projects, we decided to launch a conversational component to our organization where we will, in the coming weeks, uh, bring to you discussions pertaining to recent case law, happenings from the steps of the Supreme Court and federal courts, and projects and articles underway by our current writers and contributors. Uh, This podcast is meant solely for purposes of discourse and discussion and should not be construed to be any form of legal advice or counsel. And we will be coming to you on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time every other week here at uh, CornellRadio.com. And we thank you for tuning in and look forward to getting underway this afternoon, uh, really first diving into the very loaded uh, Supreme Court docket uh, this term. So this term's docket has been quite controversial, as I'm sure you can attest to, Matt. Yeah. Uh, Court's docket this term will have the justices weighing in on a range of issues, including workplace rights for gay and transgender people, uh, the first major Second Amendment case in nearly a decade since the Heller decision, uh, new restrictions on abortion, and President Trump's rollback of deportation protections for thousands of undocumented immigrants. However, Vincenzo, uh, I think that this term will be remembered most for the Trump cases. And... uh, those cases are going to be all about President Trump's finances. So as everybody that is listening to this podcast probably knows, President Trump is the first president in modern history that has not released their tax returns. So uh, Vincenzo, as you know, I think every president since Richard Nixon, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe, has released their tax returns before they became president. So it's become pretty routine. And the reason for that is because the American people like to know, um, you know, how much the president is making and also their business ties. They want to make sure that the president is truly independent and is making decisions for the good of the country and not for the good of their own bank account. So absolutely. Yeah. So um, President Trump, like I said, uh, he's the the wealthiest person to become president in uh, quite a long time possibly even the uh, the wealthiest person uh, to ever become president, period. So, um, you know, as a result of his wealth and his significant business ties, it's become um, a very important subject that uh, a lot of people care about trying to get the president's records to figure out uh, what he's been involved with. So uh, this term, the Supreme Court is hearing three separate cases, although two of them have been consolidated. Uh, talking about uh, that that discuss the president's uh, financial records. So um, I think that these cases are going to be really this generation's U.S. v. Nixon or this generation's Clinton v. Jones. And uh, we're going to start talking about them right now. So we're going to talk about two of the three because one of them is substantially similar to the second one and they've been consolidated anyway. So the first one we want to talk about is the Vance case. So um, for those who are not aware, uh, Cyrus Vance is a district attorney in New York. 
so he's not a, a federal prosecutor, but mm-hmm. he's a, is he state or local? He's a, he's, so he's the district attorney for New York County. So yeah. he's so definitely tech, presiding. Yeah. I believe it's the second largest borough in New York City after uh, Kings County. So he's definitely by all stretches like the New York you know, mm-hmm. state prosecutor. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Cyrus Vance subpoenaed Mazars, which is President Trump's accounting firm mm-hmm. that does that has a lot of his uh, financial records. So um, they served a subpoena on Mazars and Trump immediately sued to try to stay the enforcement of the subpoena. So uh, Mazars would not be able to turn over the president's financial records. And um, that case has went to the district court, went to the appeals court and is now at the Supreme Court. But to get really more into the arguments, which I think are pretty fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, they're really fundamental constitutional arguments. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about it. So uh, you know, one really important argument is that the the reason that the subpoena should be stayed, the reason that Mazar should not be able to turn over the subpoena is because uh, the president cannot be criminally indicted while in office and he has absolute immunity from the criminal process mm-hmm. during the same period. So cool. yeah. um, basically they're saying that he can't even be investigated by the state while he is president. So I was wondering, Vincenzo, what what do you think about that argument? Yeah, so I think this brings up a really sort of interesting conversation about, you know, this idea, is the president above the law, which I think people on both sides of the aisle would have a very, you know, difficult time making the case that you would be above the law. Um, Really what I think is the bigger question here is a matter of procedure, right? So what the district attorney, I think, here is trying to get at with this investigation is something that is really looking in many regards like a criminal investigation that you know the president has potentially compromising um, you know financial improprieties that are going to you know either embarrass him or potentially reveal conflict of interests that could tamper the effectiveness of his presidency, uh, yeah. and they want to utilize a court you know to sort of remedy that. Uh, on the other hand, you know you have and now a Senate trial going on for you know stemming from the impeachment investigation. Um, And I I think what these two episodes really kind of highlight here is that difference in procedure, right? Whereas you have the district attorney that is trying to utilize the court system, which is very hotly debated in terms of its legitimacy within legal circles. So for example, the DOJ currently has a memo in their Office of Legal Counsel Department that stipulates that a sitting president cannot be indicted, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a court edict, but a procedure where basically the, the body that would prosecute the president or that is in charge with law enforcement has said that we cannot indict the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the other side, I think, that becomes an interesting component in this is, well, the president is not really above the law, even bearing that in mind, more so that we just have to utilize the impeachment um, slash investigate the investigatory capacity of Congress vis-a-vis the impeachment and ultimately the Senate, tr- Senate trial process to hold the president accountable for things. So I think in that regard, it brings up a lot of interesting things. I'm I'm somewhat skeptical of the district attorney's ability to investigate. Uh, certainly, very very skeptical of the district attorney or any prosecutor for that matter, ability to indict a sitting president. Yeah. So uh, the indicting aspect, I think, is, like you said, very problematic. But when Mm -hmm. it comes to investigation, it just seems difficult to believe that um, 
the district attorney here would not even be able to investigate a sitting president. So leave the indictment part aside. So mm-hmm. let's just let's stipulate for the purpose of this conversation that the district attorney cannot indict them. But I mean, there's the it's just so important that they're able to investigate while the crime or while um, the evidence is fresh. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, Special Counsel Robert Mueller during the Mueller investigation, uh, he said that uh, he acknowledged the Office of Legal Counsel memo that you talked about, mm-hmm. but he had a lot of reasons why, regardless of the fact that he did not think he could indict a sitting president, he thought it was important to investigate. The evidence is fresh. The witnesses are fresh. And you really need to conduct the investigation now and then not in a couple of years from now. So mm-hmm. it's, it's something that's really important. But also, another argument that uh, the president made was that you can't serve a subpoena on the president because it burdens him. Mm-hmm. It burdens the office of the presidency. But um, I I want to read right here from the unanimous three-judge panel of the Second Circuit, Judge Katzman writing. Um, I'm going to read from it right now. He said that we are not faced in this case with the president's arrest or imprisonment. So basically, like we were talking about Mm -hmm. how it's not that level. Um, I'm going to continue. Or with an order compelling him to attend court at a particular time or place, or indeed with an order that compels the president himself to do anything. The subpoena at issue is directed not to the president, but to his accountants. Compliance does not require the president to do anything at all. And that's why I really do fundamentally believe that uh, this was really the right thing. This is the right ruling because, once again, this required the president to do nothing. His financial information was in the was on the hard drive of a third party accountant. It does not burden him at all which is why I, I think they made mm-hmm. uh, the, the right choice when it came to uh, this opinion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think one of the other things that's interesting in this case, too, is the fact that there is a third-party sort of component, uh, at least in terms of the information, right? You had mentioned that you know what prosecutors and investigators are going after are financial records that are held by a third party, by this you know accounting firm, as opposed to the president himself. So I think that, you know, that's sort of an interesting thing that the courts will have to, you know, or even not just the courts, but just in general, um, observers and other legal commentators will have to sort of grapple with is, you know, is this still effectively, you know, subpoenaing the president by going mm-hmm. through a third party? One of the other interesting things, too, I think, is, you know, again, can, you know, the president just straight up, um, you know, ignore this? Uh, because yeah. what then is the repercussion of not complying with, you know, sort of an order or a subpoena? Um, to produce this is, you know, usually in most criminal settings or investigations, you would get a contempt of court citation or something yeah. else that would result in further criminal action. I'm not entirely clear as to what the next step with that would be. So even if the court rules in Cy Vance's favor uh, and in Manhattan's favor, like, you know, what if the president just says, well, I'm not giving it to you, then what's sort of the next step? Which, yes, he loses, I guess, on the merits but effectively still kind of wins at the end of the day because if he just ignores it, knowing that there won't be any sort of substantial repercussions, knowing that, again, those repercussions are contempt of court, which bear other criminal penalties. Yeah, but they're serving the subpoena to Mazars and not to the yeah. president. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't really it, it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. if President Trump compl- – because he's not the one complying. It's rather yeah. just Mazars. And Mazars, by the way, they said they will comply with whatever the court rules. So, yeah. I mean, the question is what happens if even the Supreme Court – 
says that Mazars has to comply, then does does the president like file another lawsuit mm-hmm. about some kind of process issue? I mean, that honestly might be uh, the right thing for, for him to do if he's trying to delay this all the way until after the election. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, I, I think this case is really interesting. And like I said, this one is going to be argued in March. Um with the other case, so this case is by itself. The other, the next case we're going to talk about has been consolidated with a third case because they're substantially similar. So uh, let, let's move on to a case that's actually called Trump v. Mazars. So once again, everything is involves Mazars because Mazars is President Trump's accounting firm. It has a lot of these financial records and it has a lot of these business records. So um, this case is uh, is is similar but also substantially different because instead of um, a state district attorney. Uh, subpoenaing an accounting firm. This has actually to do with the U.S. House of Representatives subpoenaing an accounting firm. So um, President Trump filed suit alleging the House Committee on Oversight and Reform's investigation into his financial records serves no legitimate purpose. And that's uh, the main argument uh, that the President Trump was making uh, during uh, this lawsuit. So to, to go into a little bit more background here, um, the purpose from the committee for the subpoena was to get some existing documents because what actually happened in April, Michael Cohen, you guys will remember, he was the president's former fixer. He testified before Congress that Trump had improperly inflated and deflated estimates of his assets and liabilities. And Cohen said that monetary figures were adjusted to make Trump seem like a better credit risk or adjust to lower his insurance premium. So as everybody can guess, that's blatantly illegal. So um, Congress' purpose to figure out whether this was true and to make legislation somehow fixing these issues. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Mr. Trump's lawyers, however, say that the committee is improperly pursuing a law enforcement investigation about uncovering whether the president engaged in wrongdoing rather than seeking information relevant to drafting legisla- legislation. So Congress can't be ha- isn't Congress is not a law enforcement body. It's a it makes it's an oversight body and it's a um, it's a legislative body. So uh, Trump's lawyers' arguments is that basically the subpoena should not be complied with because it, it has no legitimate purpose. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just like the last case where Trump lost at the district and appeals court level, Trump's lost this case at the district and appeals court level as well. And um, basically. Uh, in the D.C. Circuit, it was actually 2-1. Uh, Trump's recently appointed judge, Judge Rao, actually mm-hmm. voted in his favor. But um, the majority said that basically Congress has the ability to look into potential wrongdoing by presidents, and they've been doing it for hundreds of years. I mean, uh, this practice goes back to at least 1832 when Congress was investigating President Jackson mm-hmm. and his Secretary of War, John Eden. But also, everybody will remember other uh, wrongdoing that Congress was investigating, like Iran-Contra, Whitewater, and uh, the Urban Committee investigation to the Watergate break-in. So, uh, what um, what Trump, what Judge Rao was saying was that um, it has to be part of impeachment for them to actually uh, conduct this oversight into the president. Mm-hmm. Although these investigations I talked about, even if they eventually, some of them led to impeachment, like um, like Whitewater or the Watergate break-in, they don't have to be mm-hmm. as part of an impeachment inquiry in order for it to be constitutional. And Iran-Contra 
was not part of impeachment inquiry or any impeachment pr- proceedings at all. So basically, Judge Rao and Trump's lawyers were saying that Iran-Contra was an unconstitutional investigation, mm-hmm. basically. So I think they're really going out on a limb here, and that's why they, they lost 2-1, and now it's actually going up to the Supreme Court. So, you know, I was wondering, Vincenzo, do you think that Congress should be able to conduct these investigations into the president without being a part of uh, an impeachment inquiry? Or do you think that it should really properly be under, uh, you know, an impeachment inquiry? I think in this matter, it makes more logical sense. And I think there's more of a reason to obtain those financial records than, say, for example, in the other case that we were discussing before, primarily because Congress really doesn't have you know, a substantial, you know, burden to prove when it comes to, you know, establishing motive. Mm-hmm. They can really say that the information is for whatever, you know, whatever they want. Mm-hmm. I think where this becomes difficult and why there's so much opposition is because I, I think this does, in many regards, practically speaking, have, you know, a, a two, it's a two-edged sword. One, I think that the information that you would potentially procure from, you know, obtaining the president's financial information and other disclosures um, would be to improve existing ethics laws as yeah. oversight has said they wanted to do. I think that that's certainly something that they... At the same time, though, I think that especially some of the more adept politicians that are sitting on the Democratic side of the committee yeah. know that there are probably things that the president doesn't want the public or his political adversaries to know, which could become you know, materially relevant to the current... Um, uh, impeachment trial uh, in the Senate, uh, or even potentially another impeachment investigation, mm-hmm. if they, they yeah. fail on this front. Definitely. Um, so that said, I do think that Congress does have a pretty strong argument here, um, in that they can pretty much say that the motive is what they say it is. Um, I am curious, though, in your sort of review of this, you, yeah. you had talked about how you know we've kind of investigated other presidents throughout uh-huh. history, yeah. um, and that this is kind of common practice. Um, with this sort of, you know, subpoenaing of financial records, for example, like, you know, could Congress theoretically then, you know, go and subpoena financial records from other individuals in the executive branch um, or anybody sort of, you know, within their purview um, to try to improve ethics laws? Like, is there a lot of historical precedence for that? Yeah, I'm not sure about the historical precedence when it comes to, um, you know, previous investigations, but it seems like they would have the, uh, the power to... Uh, the, the power to subpoena these financial records because, you know, like you said, it, it's very important to, to get these records in order to improve these, these ethics laws because um, it, it's just very important that the American people know that their government officials are working for them and not working for themselves. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I personally am a believer, and I think we should talk about this on a uh, separate segment another week, mm-hmm. but I'm a personal believer in much stronger ethics laws, much stronger investigative laws, like going back to uh, the the legal framework that Ken Starr operated in in the 90s or something mm-hmm. substantially similar to that. Independent counsel statute, yeah, yeah, because, you know, the, uh, the framework that... Uh, Special Counsel Mueller worked in was just very loose, and President Trump had the power to fire him, and there was no recourse for that. And it, 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 I think we need a system less based on norms and more based on actual laws, because mm-hmm. you know I think um, one of the lessons from the last couple of years that a lot of people point to is just the breaking of norms and the lack of laws to really keep uh, government officials in their place. Mm-hmm. So it, it's something we should definitely go back into uh, in the future. But uh, let's move on to the last case. And I'm not really going to say anything about this. I'm just going to say that 
Um, the House of Representatives uh, also serve subpoenas on Deutsche Bank and Capital One. And I, I, I bet a lot of people have heard uh, Deutsche Bank in the news a lot. They're in trouble. It's a German bank. And uh, they've been in financial trouble in the last couple of years. But also, they had this really peculiar, peculiar relationship with the Trump family. And they're one of the very few banks that will uh, deal with the president. So, I mean, everybody's very curious about the kind of records that um, Deutsche Bank has on the president. So, um, it, like, uh, like the last case, it's very similar, uh, very similar argument. So I won't really go into it. And it was actually consolidated with the last case. So they're both going to be argued at the same time because they are basically the same case, just the different institutions. So mm-hmm. um, also, there's another case that uh, I'm not talking about formally this week, but uh, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, uh, Congressman Richard Neal, has tried to get the president's tax returns through some kind of obscure law from the 1920s. And that's actually working its way through the federal district courts right now. So that's something we should definitely go back to. But Mm -hmm. there's just so many lawsuits when it comes to uh, the president's records and really the president Mm -hmm. (laughs) period. So, um, you know, I think let's uh, move on actually to yeah. something concerning the president and his legal problems, actually, yeah. because uh, mm-hmm. this is something really no interesting. Small yeah. So, uh, you know, Vincenzo, I was wondering if you can kind of get us started on what's been going on with impeachment. Well, actually, do you want to give the background to why the president was impeached and, you know, the trial right now? Yeah. So really, I think it's important to give like a little bit of a backdrop as to where we're at right now. So right now we're in the Senate trial stage where obviously the president has been impeached. I believe it was on two articles Uh uh, of impeachment um, that really started when news of a whistleblower leaked. Uh, Then the details of Trump's call with the Ukrainian president Zelensky came out. Uh, regarding a potential freeze on foreign aid that was going to be provided to Ukraine uh, as a uh, uh, basically in connection to um, the opening investigation of Joe Biden, uh, potentially Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, um, for alleged improprieties. And the president was essentially using this as a bargaining chip to try to get um, the Ukrainians to open up an investigation that would uh, advantage him politically. So Nancy Pelosi is the current Speaker of the House, started the inquiry, uh, which collected evidence and witness testimony through various committees, specifically intelligence and judiciary. House ultimately voted to impeach, and now respective managers um, have been assigned uh, to basically handle the the trial that's currently going on in the Senate, uh, which... As of today, I believe this is the second day of arguments for the tr- for Trump's team of lawyers. Yeah. Um, basically, all senators uh, are to take an oath to do impartial justice. Uh, likely will last a couple of weeks, um, depending on some other procedural hiccups that can go back and forth. Yeah. And is presided over by these um, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who's currently John Roberts. It's birthday today. Yeah. Oh, wow. 65. Yeah. yeah, that's a unfortunate birthday present. Yeah, very unfortunate. To be, yeah, just all day. So I, I think you did a pretty good job summarizing there. So uh, 67 votes in order to remove mm-hmm. the president. So uh, being impeached really doesn't mean anything functionally. I guess it's a rebuke by the legislative branch and it's happened uh, twice before. Yes. President Nixon resigned before he was impeached. But uh, this is uh, just the second time in the last 25 years this has happened. Before that, it was Andrew Johnson back yes. in the uh, the eighteen, the 1800s. So um, it's a pretty interesting time because there's so much going on that the impeachment trial is really not getting as much attention as it probably deserves. But um, there was actually a development over the weekend that I think that we should touch on uh-huh. real quick first. So 
Um, John Bolton, who was pre- who previously worked, I believe, in the Reagan administration. He's worked in a lot of Republican administrations mm-hmm. in the past, but he actually served as Trump's national um, security advisor in 2018 and 2019, he actually resigned or got fired, depending on who you talk to, mm-hmm. in September of 2019. And he immediately started writing a book. And in this book, according to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, in this book, Bolton talked about Pompeo, uh, Pompeo he talked about Giuliani, talked about Barr, but the biggest... Um, news event that came from this manuscript was the fact that Trump in August of 2019 told him that he wanted this Biden investigation and he wanted to keep freezing the Ukrainian aid until this investigation was provided. Mm -hmm. So the reason that this is such a bombshell is because this is the first time that the president of the United States has been quoted saying this by somebody who is actually in the room. This isn't secondhand, thirdhand information. This is firsthand information from somebody who is actually in the room who heard the president say this. And it's somebody who had credibility with a lot of Republicans because this person, like I said, has been in Republican administrations mm-hmm. for decades. And he is just really a stalwart in the conservative movement. Although uh, today I saw a lot of conservatives mm-hmm. saying that they really didn't weren't sure if they believed him, even though he was previously a very trustworthy person. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? Yeah, it it is. So um, now the debate, uh, like Vincenzo said, it's the second day of arguments by Trump's counsel, uh, their opening arguments. After this, there's going to be um, questions that the senators are going to pose to both sides, read by the chief justice. And after that is going to be the really big day. We're not sure exactly what day it's going to be yet, but it's going to be a big day because that is when uh, the Senate will eventually decide whether they're going to vote to have witnesses to subpoena testimony. So um, that's really the question, whether Bolton or others are going to be witnesses in the Senate trial. So uh, I was wondering, Vincenzo, do you think that John Bolton is going to be subpoenaed to testify? I mean, he said he would testify if he was subpoenaed. Yeah. So uh, I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. I would say probably no, only because the Republicans uh, that control the Senate right now have been very, very, you know, steady in their opposition to calling any witnesses, mm-hmm. um, really regardless of whether it shreds positively or negatively on the president. I believe um, even despite multiple amendments being proposed by the minority leader Chuck Schumer prior to the Senate trial beginning that were all shot down, there is a potential opportunity after formal arguments conclude yeah. for another you know, series of votes to take place. But even then, it's unclear as to whether it will be – actually, almost certainly will not be a public testimony. It will probably all be – Which is unfortunate. Exactly. It will probably all be Less private fun. behind yeah. closed doors. Um, <laughs> Just so, like the Clinton <laughs> exactly. impeachment, by the way. So um, I, I, I personally don't think so. Also, th- there was something else that you and I actually were discussing earlier today um, yeah. reading about this is that – you know. Not really taking politics out of this for a second, I think there's genuine concern about the credibility of Mr. Bolton's yes. testimony because, you know, like you pointed out earlier, Matt, he's writing a book and yeah. he had opportunities to testify for uh, the House of Representatives during the impeachment trial. I mean, during the impeachment hearings and investigation, yeah. which, um, to my knowledge, he pretty much refused. Yeah. So he was asked on, I believe, October 30th by the investigating committees to voluntarily come in on November 7th, I believe, to come in for a deposition. He 
said that he would not do it voluntarily. And the House passed on subpoenaing him because they knew that it would go out for months and months when Mm -hmm. it comes to this court fight. So Exactly. Yeah. So I think that bearing that in mind uh, and given the fact that he has a book that's ready to go to the presses. Mm -hmm. uh, 500 pages. 500 pages. Yeah. um, He does have a motive here uh, very much uh, very similar to the Fire and Fury book that, you know, sold out immediately when that was published. That was sort of this tell-all of, you know, the inside look at the Trump administration. So that said, I, I think you raise a very good point. In that Do you believe him? This was the guy. I, I, I think that there is a kernel of truth probably to some stuff in terms of the contextualization. I don't know specifically the simple, did the president outright say that he wanted to use this as a, you know, leveraging device? He wanted an investigation into the Clintons. That I don't know because up until... the Bidens. Uh, yes, into the, uh, into the Bidens. See, this all sort of yeah, messes together. Yeah, it does. Um, that I honestly don't know the answer to short of, you know, pretty much a transcript or a phone call or something that definitively says one way or the other. So here's the problem with that. And the problem is that Trump saying that he – Trump saying explicitly that he was tying the aid to the Biden investigation – it's very believable because there is so much evidence that mm-hmm. that is true. So it's not like yeah. it's not like Bolden is going out on a limb here and saying something that we didn't think was true anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, the all of all, even the transcript that Trump always is tweeting, read the transcripts, read the transcript. Yeah. I mean, the transcripts make it pretty clear that he was tying yeah. the Biden investigation to aid. So, I mean, Bolton I th- yeah. does have credibility problems like you talked about slightly. I mean, number one, it's not really sure. Wh- it's not. We're not really sure whether he was fired or resigned. Number mm-hmm. two, I mean, he has a book coming out. But yeah. at the end of the day, this is somebody who is telling a story that is remarkably similar, the same story yep. that everybody else told. And plus, we know that he... We know that he had a problem with this whole thing anyway mm. because there were so many other witnesses who said that John Bolton did not like this yes. entire situation. There, were, I believe one witness, I forget who, said that John Bolton called this a drug deal, that he didn't want to be mm-hmm. part of it all. Yeah, so, he, I had, mean, he had a lot of issues specifically yeah. with Julian. So, I mean, I, I honestly, I do believe him. But like you said, I mean, and this is going to be a problem, there's not, I mean, I'm not positive, but it does not seem like there is you know, a tape or something like mm-hmm. this. So it's going to be, yeah. it's his word against Trump's word. Although, I mean, yeah. I think a lot of people would probably believe Bolton mm-hmm. against Trump, especially and, because of all the other evidence. Yeah, and, I, and I'm inclined to pretty much agree with most of what you said. I, yeah. I think my only question just from, you know, again, taking politics out of it yeah. entirely is, you know, the, you know, why now? Why didn't he come forward, you know, oh, during well, the House know, investigation? Well, he, I mean, the reason is because, you know, he cares about money. Well, I mean, exactly. That's, that's well, really and, problematic. I agree with you. And I think that the even if there is, you know, more than a kernel of truth, you know, because he was, again, a, you know, he was at the desk, he was a frontline player. Um, it's, again, when we get into the weeds of specifics, what is, you know, sort of histrionic or flowery, you know, for the purposes of his narrative, and what is actually, you know, evidence that we can go forward with. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting. I mean, he'll, as the president took to Twitter late Sunday night, just sort of castigating Bolton as, you know, a loon and as someone who left on bad terms, et cetera. Yeah. I think that the president, regardless of Mr. Bolton's credibility, um, the, the president's going to treat him as a, you know, as someone who shouldn't be believed as he does everyone. Yeah. Else. So, uh, you know, going back to the legal aspects of this, it's so, I mean, like Vincenzo said, he wasn't very optimistic that Bolton actually will 
be subpoenaed to testify because right now the Senate is actually composed of 53 Republicans and 47 Democrats, Uh two of those Democrats being independents who caucus with the Democrats. But it's uh, 53 to 47. And uh, the interesting thing is that we're not exactly sure, even the legal experts aren't exactly sure, how many votes exactly it would take in order to um, subpoena Bolton or anything else because we don't know if Roberts would break a tie, what would happen there. So um, it it would make it very easy if just four senators were to agree to subpoena Bolton because that's a clean 51-49 vote. But uh, if if it was 50-50, I think it would be you know, it'd be very problematic for um, John Roberts because then he'd be faced with a situation where he would have to make this very political well, vote. I actually wonder if, and I haven't seen any literature on this, so this is yeah. totally going out on a limb, if you know, the vice president actually can come in there because the, the vice president is still the pre- president of the Senate. It can, and if he can come in and break a tie. Yeah, no, he, 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 it'd be Roberts. Roberts is the presiding yeah. officer. So, But I, I mean, I did see a lot of, I did see some scholars saying mm-hmm. that Roberts would need to break this. But at the same time, I think he could beg off and just mm-hmm. say 50-50, it failed. But I mean, um, I was reading the presiding officer in Andrew Johnson's impeachment. He actually broke two ties. Mm-hmm. So um, it's happened before. I don't think gotcha. Rehnquist had to deal with that situation. So Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist, mm-hmm. was the presiding officer in the Clinton impeachment trial. I don't think he was faced with that situation. Yeah. But uh, it's happened before. So you know, I think it's a pretty interesting situation, especially because Roberts probably is praying that he doesn't have to mm-hmm. uh, deal with a 50-50 tie. Good reasons. Yeah, yeah. exactly, because of the politics of it. But uh, I'm, I'll, I'll go on the record and say that I'm a little bit more optimistic than Vincenzo is about witness, uh, witness uh, testimony. And the reason for that, is uh, if you asked me last week, I probably been I probably would have been where Vincenzo is. But ever since this Bolden news came out, everybody's been talking about the fact that you know it's important to get him on the record to see exactly what he is saying and not just what his manuscript is saying through the New York Times, the Washington Post, and whatever. So uh, you know, I think um, I'm pretty optimistic about uh, Bolden testifying. Like I said, uh, like Vincenzo said, in a deposition, not live testimony. Um, just like the Clinton impeachment. And uh, I mean, there's the question of other witnesses, too. It looks like the Republicans are going to try to get like a witness for a witness, which is not how uh, these how trials typically work. But, uh, you know, impeachment is much more political than legal. So Mm -hmm. if uh, if the Democrats are able to subpoena uh, John Bolton, it looks like the Republicans will first and foremost try to get Hunter Biden or even Joe Biden or the whistleblower to come mm-hmm. testify. So I, I'm not sure how successful they'll be with that. I They might actually succeed in that happening and getting Hunter Biden to testify. Uh, obviously, that has significant political implications. But um, it's really an interesting uh, time we're in right now. I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I don't really think anybody's sure what's going to happen, even like Mitch McConnell, who mm-hmm. is... Um, you know, the majority leader of the Senate. So um, we should have some clarity in the next couple of days what's going to happen, uh, especially uh, as the trial kind of the opening arguments and the questions wind down and we actually get to uh, some of these key votes. But um, mm-hmm. with that, I think we're going to move on to the last topic of the day. So Every other week when we record this podcast, we want to have a new recurring segment. And that recurring segment is going to be looking at the scholarship in previous issues um, of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review. So this week, we're going to talk about a piece by our very own Vincenzo Guido. Mm -hmm. 
And that piece is titled The American Punishments Clause, A Historical Inquiry into Original Meanings, and it was published in the fall 2019 edition of the review. And it's online for everybody to see, so you can go check out it on the website, colser.org, or you could you know, find a paper copy of the review to There's review still a couple as well. There are a couple, yeah. So, um, you know, first off, Vincenzo, I was wondering for our listeners if you could lay out your thesis or summarize the piece so our listeners kind of get an idea. Yeah, so really, you know, I think kind of borrowing directly from the article, what it really what I seek to do here is to trace the intellectual origins of the punishments clause, specifically that part of the Eighth Amendment um, of the U.S. Constitution that reads, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Um, and in doing so, what really my article contends is that the founders un- understood the terms cruel and unusual to mean unduly severe and unambiguously contrary to the legal uh, tradition, respectively. And there's an interesting sort of interplay between those words um, and it differs in many ways from some of our modern understandings of cruel and unusual punishment that are more the invention of case law than history. So, but we can get into that in yeah. a little while. So uh, you did a pretty good job summarizing your piece right there, but I just want to start with like a pretty basic question. Mm-hmm. You know, where does the Eighth Amendment come from? Was it, and was it controversial? Because everybody that's listening to this podcast knows the Eighth Amendment's from the Bill of Rights, but, you know, if you could talk about its origin beyond just it appeared in the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. how did it actually come to be? Yeah, so really the primary historical resource that we have for this is the English Bill of Rights from 1689 uh-huh. where basically the clause was borrowed verbatim. Oh, and really? Verbatim. Then, and then there's some you know narrow distinction between the sort of the history of the British iteration and then the American iteration that we can talk about a little bit more. But in terms of the the was this controversial, which I uh-huh. think is an interesting question. Yeah. Um, the short answer is no, but also that doesn't mean there wasn't any objections. There was yeah. one specific objection um, that we do have record of from the Constitutional Convention and the debates um, from Madison's notes. Uh, so basically when James Madison had introduced the amendment, uh, there was one objection from a delegate from New Hampshire named Samuel Livermore. And I'll read an excerpt from his quote uh, from the record that's available from them. It said, in reference to the clause, it appeared to have no meaning as to punishments taking away life is sometimes necessary, mm. but because it may be thought cruel, you will therefore never hang anybody. The truth is uh, matters of this kind must be left to the discretion of those who have the administration of the laws. Now, what's interesting is that really that's the only record of dissent that we have because the amendment passed um, after that um, after that sole dissent. Um, so it's interesting in that there's debate among a lot of legal scholars, at least that I've unearthed in researching this article, as to whether, you know, did the founders really understand, you know, what they were proscribing when they said, you know, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted, or was it as some legal um, scholars have um, sort of said that it was just sort of boilerplate, uh, boilerplate language that was a statement of first principles, that it was something that was so sort of significant or common sense, especially that it came, especially as it came from the English tradition of which almost all the founders were intimately, intimately aware of that this was just sort of, you know, common sense yeah, as opposed so, to anything else. I mean, you kind of started alluding to it a little bit there in your last answer, but I think the main gist or the main question um, regarding your article is really regarding whether 
if you could talk about the difference between how the Eighth Amendment was really intended uh-huh. and how it's read today. Because a lot yeah. of people read the Eighth Amendment and it's pretty straightforward, cruel and unusual. And, um, uh-huh. you know, a lot of people have their own, um, you know, conceptions of what that means. But it's, once again, it's a pretty straightforward amendment. But if you could yeah. describe really how it was intended and how it's viewed today, that yeah. would be really useful. So starting from sort of the intention standpoint. Yeah. I mean, this borrows a lot from the English tradition and also troves of other scholarship and tradition that dates really back to biblical times in terms of um, the lex talionis, the law of, of uh, retaliation, or really, as we understand it more, kind of the law of proportionality that like, you know, a specific punishment must fit the crime. Mm-hmm. And I think really what a lot of the scholarship, th- there's actually an extensive amount of uh, rely, um, relying that I do on this one law review article which has been cited in numerous books um, by an author named Anthony Granucci, um, who kind of goes through the his, you know the historical episodes that led to the Eighth Amendment. Um, really, the, the most of the evidence points to them understanding it as one something having to deal with the proportionality, and also something that you know wanting to prevent abuses of magistra- magisterial or other sorts of discretion um, that would have prescribed that would have prescribed punishments as in doled out punishments that were wholly contrary to the legal tradition. Uh-huh. I'll give an example. Yeah. So um, in the English tradition, there was a gentleman named Titus Oates who um, is seen as sort of the origin point of the uh, British version of the punishments clause. He had concocted this whole you know, uh, conspiracy theory that there was a Jesuit Catholic uh, plot to dethrone the monarchy and to install basically a Catholic theocracy that was going to pledge fealty to Rome in England, which was a legitimate fear in England at the time. It was called um, popery. Hmm. And basically when it was discovered that this was a whole hoax and that troves of people had been imprisoned and executed falsely for this, um, Titus was very severely punished in ways that were seen as anathema. Like what? Um, uh, He was uh, defrocked, which was basically taken off uh, stripped of his um, clerical um, privileges, he was uh, given an exorbitant fine that no one in their right mind would have been able to pay back in that time, um, and also um, sentenced to a variety of other things that were seen as cruel. I'm trying to find the exact citations here in my article from some of the other examples of punishment because they really cut against what was seen as you know an appropriate punishment for that time. Mm-hmm. So, sort of getting back here is you know. That was seen as, you know, it was not even that those punishments were necessarily seen as cruel in and of themselves. They were cruel insofar as they were, they exceeded what was to be, you know, allowed for the offense that he I understand, yeah. Um, And that tradition largely carries over to the Americans as well. Um, Uh One of those scholars that I actually cite who wrote a book called, literally called The Bill of Rights, uh, Professor Akhil Amar at Yale University, um, he really says that you know the Eighth Amendment probably would not have seen uh, would would not have been seen as having really any enforceable bite against congressionally authorized statutes mm. um, that prescribe uh, that prescribed certain punishments for certain offenses. Okay, um, so it's mostly about making sure that the punishments doled out were consistent with exactly. past punishments. But as long as if Congress actually did prescribe a punishment or they they, uh, they said that this punishment yeah. were to be for this crime, then really the Eighth Amendment would right. have had no teeth. Yeah, and I'd, and I'd say to sort of get to the second part of your question that you asked before, too, how does this kind of differ from the modern understanding? Um, 
one of the key things is this fixation, even within certain conservative circles, such uh-huh. as the late Justice Scalia, who believed that certain punishments were outlawed you know, by virtue. I don't know the specifics off the top of my head, um, but were outlawed by the Eighth Amendment. The uh-huh. fixation is definitely on the methods of punishment as opposed uh, to the proportionality. Okay. So going back to, again, things that we would probably consider in you know, our common understanding of cruel and unusual, things like tarring and feathering. Uh-huh. Um, Capital punishment for a variety of different, you know, criminal offenses, scourging or public whipping, being put in a pillory, um, you know, for long periods of time. Those were all seen as things today that we would consider perhaps cruel and unusual, but back then were actually in pretty routine use. Um, so what we see today in a lot of scholarship and a lot of case law is a fixation on you know, the methods of punishment. So there's been a lot of cases, you know, um, especially as of late dealing with things like lethal injection, you know, was the administration of, you know, the death penalty using lethal injections in certain circumstances. I think there was a case out of Oklahoma um, from a couple of years ago um, that dealt with this. Uh, really fixating on you know, the the methodology and the administration of the punishment as opposed to the proportionality portion. Yeah, so uh, before we end here, I just want to ask, why did you decide to write this piece on the history of the Eighth Amendment? Mm-hmm. Was, there, was there a reason? Yeah, so uh, for me, I am personally very interested in the intersection of constitutional issues and criminal justice policy. And I think a lot of the stuff that we focus on today is very, you know, focused on, you know, how we punish, what the solutions to crime uh, are. And also because, again, uh, as I was alluding to before, there's a major distinction it would seem to be, you know, between what the founders originally understood cruel and unusual to be versus what modern academics and lawyers understand it to be. So sort of unearthing that using um, more of the historical resources as opposed to case law, I thought would have been a fun exercise and I think it came out pretty well. So I think really with that, we're just about here at the end, uh, which is super exciting. Our first episode down. Um, I guess before we formally conclude for the day, I just want to say thank you to CornellRadio.com for their generous airspace and time allowing us to record this. I want to thank my co-host, Matt, uh, for being here with me uh, and kicking off this first episode. I want to, again, remind uh, folks that are interested in uh, tuning in again uh, that we will be here not next week but the week after, uh, which I actually don't have that date directly in front of me, but every other Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. So until then, my name is Vincenzo Guido. My name is Matthew Chekhov. And this has been Law and Society Talk, and we'll see you next time.